take a Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. As Gary said, it is Reformation Sunday, and this Tuesday will mark 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Uh, he was calling the church to repent where she had erred in doctrine and practice. And one practice that Luther attacked was the sale of indulgences. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes in a, in a treasury of merit. Uh, indulgences draw from this treasury as one way to reduce uh, the amount of punishment one experiences in, in what they call purgatory. In Luther's day, there were some in the Catholic Church who were selling these indulgences, pretending to sell forgiveness, leading thousands to believe that God's gracious favor can be earned. Luther saw this as a direct assault on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. No human merit could ever forgive sins. And others joined Luther in the protest arguing from Scripture that grace is no longer grace if it can be earned. And from this controversy, one crucial sola among five others was birthed, sola gratia. It's a Latin expression that means salvation is by God's grace alone. Now the Catholic Church won't deny that salvation is by God's grace. Let's not misrepresent them. Their catechism plainly states that the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace. But the same catechism adds this. We can then earn, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Salvation may be by grace in Catholic teaching, but it's certainly not by grace alone. You may be surprised at how relevant the assertion truly is that salvation is by grace alone. One way our culture can jeopardize the true gospel is by teaching that our fundamental worth and identity is based on our performance. It comes up with slogans like, what goes around comes around, or God helps those who help themselves, or you get what you pay for. You feel it on the sandlot when all the other boys get picked before you because they perform better on the field. Commercials promote various kinds of drugs and diets to maximize your performance. It comes with every Facebook post that makes you feel that if you don't do X, Y, and Z just like me, then you're missing out, you're not a good mom, and you're just not accepted. It's part of the reason stress, anxiety, and depression are so prevalent. People exhausting themselves, trying to measure up, trying to live according to society's expectations. And if not careful, we start to believe that our fundamental identity is based on our performance. And sadly, such a belief even begins to warp our theology. Sure, we once knew that God saves sinners. Grace got us in the door, so to speak. But now, 
how tempting it is to believe that it's up to me to finish the race. That it's up to my prayers and our Bible study and our sin management and our goodness and our ministry efforts to maintain the favor of God. Salvation that started by amazing grace alone morphs into an exhausting grace plus works religion where we're never quite sure what God thinks of us. Whether we're going to make it at all in the end and if the gospel is all that good after all. Luther once said that human nature is no longer able to imagine or conceive any way to be made right with God other than works. Hence the cacophony of religions in the world which amount to various forms of what man can do for himself to obtain the supernatural or appease his God or gods. But what should become very clear for us today is that what counts most in life isn't anything that you have or anything that you can do. It's what God does for you from his own pleasure and grace in Christ. I want to mine the riches of God's grace from Ephesians. And my goal is straightforward. To show you why salvation is by grace alone. From beginning to end. And then talk about a few ways it should affect our lives. Before mining these riches though, I want to clarify a few things. To be clear, grace is not approval. Grace is not tolerance of sin. Grace never minimizes sin. It exposes it. Nor does grace leave people as they are, never producing change. Titus 2 actually says that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Also, grace is never something that can be earned, worked for, even after you're a Christian. Grace is always undeserved, unmerited favor. And when we're talking about salvation, grace is God's free and extravagant generosity in Christ toward undeserving sinners. God's free and extravagant generosity in Christ toward undeserving sinners. Something else is this, as we go through a few passages here, I want you to note up front that the source of our salvation is the triune God. The triune God. Grace comes from one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Right from the outset in verse 2, you will see that Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, we see he brings in the Spirit. So in unceasing unity, the Trinity saves us. It is the source of grace. That also means that God's work of redemption is indivisible. I'm going to refer today to four key moments in our Uh, salvation in, in God's redemption plan. The Father electing us before history. The Son redeeming us in history. The Spirit applying redemption throughout history. And then God finishing our salvation at the end of history. And we need to see that these four 
moments, even though we might emphasize the Father at one point and the Son's work and the Spirit at another, these four moments are all historically distinct, but they they hang together with God's one plan of redemption. And also, I want you to notice how Paul stresses one's union with Christ, especially in these first 14 verses alone. We we hear the steady refrain of in Christ, in Him, through Jesus Christ, in the Beloved, more than 10 times. And this is important because all of the riches of God's grace come only to those in union with Christ. Everything we're covering today comes to those only in union with Christ. And that means union with Christ means you belong to Him and He belongs to you at all moments in the story of redemption. This union with Christ will both amaze you and will give you solid grounds, as we'll see, for assurance that God's grace will never fail us. And then one more. I'm going to say a lot about God's grace today, but I'm certainly not going to exhaust all the Bible reveals about His grace. And nor do I want to give you the impression that I live by this grace very well. I'm not always a gracious man, and I too sometimes think that my worth as a pastor is maintained before God by my ability to perform Well, and always saying the right things in conversations. See, this message is for me as much as it is for you. That we might all grow together living by faith in God's grace alone to save us. Now with that said, let's let's now mine the riches of God's grace. And I want to look at four moments, as I said, in God's redemption plan. First, salvation is by grace alone because God elects us in Christ before history. God elects us in Christ before history. So look at chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. Paul celebrates, he's celebrating every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he begins with our election. Even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, according to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Simply put, salvation comes to sinners only and ultimately by God's choice. We need to be more specific though. I want you to notice four things about God's choice. One, His choice is eternal. Before the foundation of the world, it says. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 calls it grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages even began. It's not a choice awaiting certain conditions like works or even faith to play out. It's a choice God makes before the world existed. We're not chosen because we believe. We believe because we're chosen. Two, the choice is personal. He chose us. 
in Christ, it says. Us. He didn't simply choose a way that people could be saved in history, nor did he simply choose a condition by which people would be saved. God actually chose a people, us, to put into Christ. John's Gospel will speak about these people as those the Father has given to the Son. The book of Revelation speaks about these people as those who were, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Three, notice that God's sovereign will stands behind this choice. Verse five, it says, according to the purpose or pleasure of his will. Verse 11, he works all things, including this election, all things according to the counsel of his will. Therefore, God's choice to save us isn't grounded in our will to choose God, but in God's will to choose us. It's not grounded in God foreseeing that at some point down the road in the future, this person and this person and this person would believe. No, he chose us simply because he willed to love us and to give us to his son for our eternal enjoyment and his eternal praise. Which leads to four. His choice is ultimately for his praise. His choice is ultimately for his praise. Verse 6 it says, to the praise of His glorious grace. So alongside predestination here, election is, we see, an act of grace. And as an act of grace, God gets all the glory for my salvation, not me. We did nothing to earn or to deserve His choice. We did nothing to put God in debt to us. He was not obligated to choose us. That's why grace is free. God is not constrained by something outside of himself to choose. It's free. He just chose, and therefore all human boasting is excluded, and all praise belongs to God. If the ultimate basis of our salvation ever becomes our willing or our doing, then we rob God of the glory that rightly belongs to him. And so for these reasons and others, many throughout church history have, have described God's gracious act of election as unconditional. God's, God elects to save certain individuals, but not on the basis of their works or foreseen faith. It's based solely on God's sovereign pleasure. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's grace alone we see here from eternity past. We're saved only because God chose to save us. But don't forget that this choice way in eternity past, if that's even, we're just stretching language here to talk about eternity past. Even that choice back there was in Christ. A phrase that Paul returns to in verse 7. He says, in Christ or in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the Riches of His grace. And this leads to a second major moment I want to highlight in God's salvation plan. We see that salvation is by grace alone in that Christ accomplishes our redemption within history. Christ accomplishes it in full. 
within history. At times, Paul will, um, he will describe our, our former manner of life as a, as a life that is outside of, of Christ. Uh, we see that later in chapter 2, verse 12. Um, and then once the gospel comes to us and we believe and, and God justifies us, he, he puts us into Christ in that, in that moment through conversion and faith and, and so forth. But at other times, Paul will use this phrase, in Christ, when describing our solidarity with Christ back in 2,000 years ago on the cross and in his resurrection. You see this in places like Romans 5 and Romans 6 especially. And we see it here. Our solidarity with Christ in his once for all time death on the cross. While Christ's death certainly accomplishes more, verse 7 mentions two things in particular. He notes our redemption and our forgiveness. Okay, redemption and forgiveness. Redemption has to do with deliverance from slavery. Okay, when, when we hear the word slavery, you know, we might think of, uh, might imagine a man in shackles working himself to death under the crack of a tyrant's whip. Sin puts us in shackles like that with, with no way of escape. But let me tell you something, slavery to sin is even worse than that. We're not just in the shackles, we like the shackles. We prefer the shackles. We think the shackles are freedom. So on top of that, we need forgiveness. We're guilty before a holy God for violating his law. Without forgiveness, God must rightly punish us. And what Paul is celebrating here is that for those who are in Christ, just like you might be in the ark when God's wrath sweeps over the world, you are in Christ when God's wrath sweeps over Christ. For those in Christ, God accomplished both their redemption from slavery and their forgiveness of sins when he died on the cross. Okay, and these these blessings come, it says, through his blood. In that once for all time event, God put his son forward as the perfect sacrifice for his elect. When he died for the sins of his people, mysteriously, we were united with him in that death. He's not simply our substitute. He's our representative substitute. He went to the cross as a husband for his bride. Ephesians 5.25 says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All at once, everything that needed to be accomplished to secure our right standing with God was accomplished in that moment. Nothing more can be added to it. Nothing needs to be added to it. No prayer you make, no hymn you sing, no deed you perform, no money you can give can add to Christ's redemption or by your forgiveness. Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We were born in sin, but Christ came as our new Adam without sin. We were guilty with trespasses, but Christ had obeyed God's law perfectly at every step where we failed. 
We were enslaved to sin, but Christ died to shatter the shackles and then carry us out of our bondage. No mere human could satisfy God's wrath. Only the infinite worth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, could drain the cup of God's wrath till it was finished. Now the question I want to ask you here is where were you in that whole process? Where were you when Christ was on His way to deliver His people from sins? Where were you? What was your contribution when God put His Son forward as our substitute? You and I had zero to do with any of that. It happened outside of us. While we were still sinners, it says, Christ died for us. No works, no inherent goodness, nothing in us moved God to love us and send Christ for us. God does all that, he says, right here, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Not just a little sprinkle, not a little dab of... He lavishes grace on His people in the death of His beloved Son. So we've seen that He planned this grace in eternity past quite apart from us. He manifested that grace in history, in the death of Christ quite apart from us. Now I want to mine a third moment in our salvation. So this would be when the Spirit causes us to be born again throughout history. When, as He takes the work of Christ, whether you live before Christ or you live after Christ, He takes the work of Christ and He applies it to God's people throughout history. God accomplished our salvation at the cross but His people from each generation must believe what God accomplished through the Gospel. But lest we miss God's grace, even in our faith and our conversion, and begin to think it was owing to us, I want you to look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is, that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The grace of our redemption in Christ will not amaze us unless we feel the gravity of our rebellion in Adam. People who grow dull about God's grace have lost sight of who they once were. People who attack salvation by grace alone have way too much confidence in themselves and miss the Bible's dismal picture of the human condition. And what Paul says here, we're not just drowning at sea. If, if someone would just throw us a lifeline. No, we're flatlined on the ocean floor when it comes to pursuing the things of God. It says we're dead 
in our sin. We're captive to Satan. We're rebels deserving wrath. That's what everybody is by nature, he says, just like the rest of mankind. So nobody can do anything about it. That's the thing. Dead people can do nothing. But look what God does by His Spirit. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You need to be amazed at that reversal right there. It says we were dead in sin. Reversal. But God made us alive together with Christ. Now we're alive. We're awakened to the things of God. We were captive to Satan, but God, it says, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And you go back and read chapter 1, verse 21. It's there that we see Christ is seated far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion. Satan ain't got nothing on him, nor those seated with him. We were rebels deserving wrath, it says, but God saved us. Why? To spend the coming ages showing off the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We went from children of wrath to trophies of grace. And God did it all. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, what's this here? This This grace, this salvation, this faith, the whole package, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen to those two denials. Not your own doing, not a result of works. That's why salvation is by grace alone. Alone. Even the faith is a gift. Philippians 1.29 He grants it to us to believe in Christ. Repentance is a gift. We've seen that in Acts. He granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. That doesn't mean that God's grace is unrelated to works. Verse 10 actually tells us that grace also produces good works in God's beloved. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But we need to be careful. These works that we do never earn God's favor. They never earn God's grace for salvation. Got to see a difference between effort and earning. Grace does work effort in the life of the believer. We produce good works, but we don't earn God's grace in that. They, They actually manifest God's grace in salvation. They don't earn God's grace for salvation, they manifest God's grace in our salvation. Look at it carefully. We're His workmanship. 
He recreates us in Christ Jesus. He prepared the works beforehand. So yeah, we will and we do them. But it's like Paul says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Let's look now at the final moment in God's salvation plan. We see that salvation is by grace alone in the way God finishes our salvation at the end of time. So chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians go on expounding the gospel of God's grace. Chapters 4 to 6 will then show what the outworking of God's grace looks like for the individual and for the community. God's Spirit works in His people uh, in chapter 4 so that they learn to put off the old self and put on the new self. And what is that new self? Well, it's created after the likeness of God. God did it, this new self thing. Believers themselves even become conduits of grace to others in the words that we share. Ephesians 4.29, we speak so that it might impart grace to the hearer. God's Spirit also gifts the church. In chapter 4, verse 7, grace, it says, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the purpose of this at the end of uh, in verse 16 is, is that these gifts, when they're all functioning rightly, they grow the whole church into Christ, who is our head. If we go on to chapter 6, we see that we're supposed to put on the full armor of God. What is the armor of God? (laughs) It ain't you. And it ain't anything you can do. It is the belt of truth. That's revealed from God. Righteousness. That's given by God. It's peace. That only comes through the gospel. It's faith. Which is receiving what God has done for us. He's armor. All of it's grace. We're putting on God's grace as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ so we can resist the devil's temptations and all these various relationships he talks about husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and whatnot. So this is all grace. But all of these things in chapters 4 to 6 are anticipating something. They are future-oriented. I want you to look back at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says uh, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So all these grace gifts working themselves out in the church and the armor of God and this perseverance and all the sanctification going on in chapters 4 to 6, it's all until, until what? We acquire possession of an inheritance. So this has a future to it. Ephesians 5, once it speaks of Christ dying for His church, why did He die for her? Verse 27 in chapter 5, so that He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. We're going somewhere. The presentation of Christ's bride to his, to the bridegroom. So we started with God's grace toward us before the foundation of the world. Here we find that God's grace toward us will never waver to the end of the world. Okay, the third person of the Trinity is given as our guarantee. Heard one guy 
say that God never writes checks that his power can't cash. If God elects to save us in Christ before history, and then he sends Christ to represent us in history, and then he seals us by the Spirit throughout history, then we can rest assured that he will raise us in Christ at the end of history. And when we're raised from the dead to receive that inheritance and given new bodies that will never die and wills that will never sin again, in that moment will a single person say, I had something to do with that. I had something to do with getting up from the dead. I had something to do with not sinning. Why will you never sin again at the resurrection. God. That's the only reason. God. And our song will therefore be glory alone be to the God of all grace. Which leads us to a first way. Grace alone affects us. Salvation by grace alone leads us to honor the God of all grace. From beginning to end. Isn't isn't that what it's ultimately about? That's the refrain in in chapter 1. It's it's unquestionable. Everything about our salvation. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. When salvation is by grace alone, all honor belongs to God alone. Soli gratia leads to soli deo gloria. Grace alone is about promoting true worship. It's not about toting a party line called Protestant. It's about worship and smashing idolatry in our lives. It thinks we can do something to earn favor with God. When salvation is by grace alone, all honor belongs to God alone. Grace alone also means that we We walk in humility before God and others. You see, if salvation is by works, and Paul brings this up repeatedly, if salvation has anything to do with our works, then we've got something to boast about. We've got something to take credit for. That's implied in chapter 2, verse 8 even. But if it's by grace alone, then we have nothing to boast about. That's why Paul says elsewhere, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if you're a Christian, there's no room for pride in the church. There's no room for looking down on others in the church. There's no room for looking down on others outside the church. Because we had nothing to do with getting in to begin with. There's no room for favoritism or partiality or envy toward one another. Everything we have in Christ is a gift. Colossians 3.1 instructs us well. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I want you to hear that rightly. He does not say, I want you to put on kindness and humility to become God's chosen ones. No. He says, as God's chosen ones. 
as God's chosen ones, put on kindness and humility. Humility grows out of being chosen by grace. Humility grows out of knowing that there was nothing in us that moved God to love us. He simply chose to love us unworthy as we are. Salvation by grace alone also motivates us to walk in holiness. Yes, God's grace is extravagant. And it's so extravagant that some were accusing Paul of lawlessness. It, it, it was, they were saying, you know, if grace is really this extravagant, Paul, then, then they feared that some would just go about their lives sinning all the more so that grace might abound. But Paul destroys that objection. And he shows that if grace truly saves us from our bondage to sin, if he has truly, if Christ has come in and rescued us from that bondage and carried us out into fellowship with the Father, why would we still walk in it? More than that, he shows that, that grace both trains and empowers. Look, look at uh, Titus. Turn to Titus. A few more pages over to the left, I mean to the right, and Titus chapter 2, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, so this would be 998 if you're using a pew Bible. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So grace of God appeared, what does it do? training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." So we see there, grace training and grace empowering. It trains us to deny ungodliness and then on the positive side to live godly lives, but it then empowers us by showing that Christ is the one who redeems from all lawlessness and purifies for himself a people who are zealous for good works. So yeah, we're denying ungodliness and pursuing holiness, but Christ is in here purifying and making us zealous. For good works. Which leads to something else I want to remind you of. Find your help in God's grace daily. Find your help in God's daily grace in Christ. You know, there's a reason, if you want to go back to Ephesians, you will see that Paul ends on this note in his letter in, six, in chapter 6, verse 24. He says, Grace be with all of you. Grace be with. He started with grace. Grace to you. Now, grace be with you all. We need God's grace to be with us every day. The idea is you, you take everything that's written in this letter, every, every command you can think of, and, and you're going about your day at the office, you need grace to be with you. In that moment, 
at the office. And you need grace to be with you in the morning when the kids don't want to do school. You need grace to be with you when the cancer hits and you need help holding on to God's promises. You need grace to be with you when you're tempted to give in to immorality. So this grace is something that goes with us. Because we are in Christ. And we need it. You know, when we went through James together, I remember several of you being struck by these, by these words in James chapter 4, verse 6. After giving a picture of our idolatry. And he says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Live every moment of your day by those words. But he gives more grace. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Next, if salvation is truly by grace alone, then herald God's grace in Christ to others. Herald this message to others. Paul counted his mission in chapter 3, verse 2 of Ephesians as a stewardship of God's grace. And part of that stewardship was him announcing the gospel of God's grace to others. I mean, we live in a world swarming with religions that have as their fundamental presupposition that man is good enough to make things right with God, that man can earn God's favor, that man can work his way to heaven. Our world is also teeming with people who exhaust themselves seeking approval from God and others instead of resting in God's grace in Christ. Even worse, so-called churches and their false teachers have taught others that if they'll just do X, Y, and Z, then God is sure to bless you. That God can't do anything until He sees your resolve first. That Jesus put the down payment on your salvation, but you have to keep up the payments. That's not good news. That's poison. We have a better gospel. We have the true gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. And people will only be freed from their exhausting man-made religion that leads to hell with the extravagant, grace-filled gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So share it with others and share it with all. People sometimes think that, that this view of God's sovereign grace in election and conversion, it hinders missions and evangelism. It hinders it. But I just want to say, it's the only hope for missions and evangelism. Because of divine election, we are guaranteed that people will be saved. Because of God's powerful grace raising the dead, we can have every confidence that when we do preach the gospel, He will make them alive. Jesus has other sheep that will hear His voice, John 10, 16. Those ordained to eternal life will be saved, Acts 13, 48. The Lamb will receive the reward of His sufferings, Revelation 5, 9. More than that, sovereign grace means He can save anybody He wants to. Anybody, no matter the background, no matter the despair that they're in, no matter the shameful past that they have, no matter what kind of heinous crimes they have committed, 
His grace is greater than all our sin. God is not bound by your evil. He is totally free to save. If anybody ever says, I just don't know if God can save someone like me. Well, sovereign grace enables us to say right back, well, he saved me. I'm just like you. Your sin isn't the determining factor in whether you can be saved. Grace is. And his grace in Christ is more than sufficient to save anybody. So come to him. Can we say it like that? Can we say it like that to the world? Herald grace to others. And then lastly, I want you to hope in God's grace to finish your salvation. Hope in God's grace to finish your salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says that God loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Why do we have good hope? Grace happens through grace. We have His Spirit by grace, and He is our guarantee. We have His promises by grace. Promises like Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So the good work He began, He will finish. I spent some time with my family last week down in South Texas. And one day we went to a nursing home where my granny is. Uh, we celebrated her 92nd birthday. And most of the conversation was spent reminding her about who I was. And reminding her about who my children were. Where I was living. Her memory isn't good and fading rapidly. I also ran into another lady that used to live down the street from my mom and dad. But she was now in a nursing home. And she couldn't hardly talk or understand anything because of of Alzheimer's. And it got me thinking as I was preparing about how much hope we truly have when salvation is by grace alone. Because what happens when I become too weak to serve others or when I can't even remember the wife God gave me to love as Christ loved the church Or the worst for me was, what happens when my memory so fades that I can't even remember the name of Jesus? I can't even read my Bible and feel the the warmth of his promises. What happens then? Will I lose favor with God? This gospel of sovereign grace says, no way! It's grace alone. My salvation was accomplished in full in Christ and in Him I will stand righteous before God. I might forget Jesus, but He will never forget me from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world to the end of the world. He will never forget me. I am His and He is mine. He has fit me to see Him face to face. And there is no purgatory that I need because I have all of Jesus' righteousness given to me by God's grace. And that righteousness of Christ will fit me to see Him face to face the moment He takes me and the moment He takes you. So to Him be praise and glory forever.
Why don't we pray?